0: Karen, your, your books have been described or are described as thrillers and romance and suspense. How do you define them? Um, I, I would define
1: them as romantic thrillers. And, you know, people always kind of discuss what's the difference between a thriller and suspense. And, and I, I'm, I suppose from an academic standpoint, there's a difference. For me, somebody's in danger, bad things happen, bad must be defeated. That's kind of the... The commonality between the two, so I don't really split hairs too much. But uh, a romantic thriller—it's got uh, the elements of romance between the hero and the heroine, and their um, their path to a relationship as they defeat, you know, whatever evil is afoot.
0: Now I know you started writing um, after you'd had children, um, yes. but because you'd had because you had so many stories going around in your head. But, uh, but why crime and not other stories? Why not pure romance, for example? Well, I started out with pure romance, actually.
1: and it, But it was pure romance, but it always had something kind of a dark overtone. And there was... The, the very first book I wrote had no suspense in it. It was... Uh, and nobody will ever read it because it's really bad. <laughs> and really long. It's in a closet. Probably, probably one of the boxes in my attic somewhere. Um, but uh, uh, that was pure. That was kind of a pure romance. It was... A book I wrote when I was traveling and just didn't have enough books to read, and it was fun. It was a hobby. And then when I started getting a little more serious about it and a little more structured, the book I wrote was more of a women's fiction, um, kind of a morality tale, actually. And as I rewrote that book, it became my first sold book, which was called Don't Tell. But when it started out, it didn't... It the element of suspense was really the woman's backstory. There was really no suspense in the story itself, but because it started out with the you know the backstory having some suspense, my first agent said, "Have you ever thought of writing a thriller?" Like, no, not really. And and uh, I you know I was watching Law and Order. I read thrillers. I was like, "Well, let's see what I can do." So I went back and look. I, I I'm an engineer, so I pick things apart. And I thought, well, I don't know how to write a thriller, so I'll pick a thriller that I liked and that surprised me at the end. And I'll figure out how they did it. And then that's what I'll go do. That's what I did. And it's just, when I put them two together, it just really seemed to click. And can you remember what that book was, that thriller? Oh, yeah, it was a book by Tammy Hoag called um, Ashes to Ashes. And I got to the end of it and I was like, what? No way! He can't be the killer! He was. It was kind of like that movie, Sixth Sense, you know, or, you know, that, you, that, that Bruce Willis was talking to that kid's mother. And you go back and realize that they, they've been so clever the way that they filmed it. It really didn't happen. They just because but that's what you want to believe. And uh, and that's when I, I kind of what I found out in her book was that um, she had constructed the story in such a way so that the weighing the, the of the clues was, I mean, it, it's it's a skill, but it's not a huge... Mystery. It's basically you lay the clues in such a way that they're kind of surrounded all, by all the characters, and you get so caught up in the characters that you stop looking for the clues. Like they were all there, you know, they were all there in a very sensible way. I just wasn't paying attention to them because I was so caught up in the story itself, and uh, so that that was actually the secret to it. And uh, yeah, so I I actually told her this once. I met Tammy later, much, uh, several years, several years and many books later and I told her and she kind of laughed and she goes well when you figure out what I did tell me because I have no idea
0: (laughs) so are you ever disturbed by the violence that you describe yes or are you able able to distance yourself from it I don't distance myself from it um, and I am
1: disturbed by it Um, and I think I have to be disturbed by it or else it wouldn't have that not not to, to toot my own horn but I think there's an authenticity to the To the fear and the terror and the evil, and it's because I make myself be in their in their head. You know, I mean, for the time for the time frame, even if it's just a paragraph, where um, you know one character who's only there as a victim. You know, only quote unquote as a victim and kind of walks on the page and is 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 killed for that. Paragraph. That person is an important person with a backstory and a family and a job and responsibilities. And their life has ended. You know, in that moment. And um, yeah, so yeah, I do put myself in their place, and I do can make myself very paranoid while I'm writing too. And I, and I tend to worry more about children and friends. And you know, sometimes I'm like, Are you okay? Are you sure you're okay? And mom, it's not one of your books. You can stop calling me now. You know. But yeah, it's uh,
0: I, I I am I am disturbed by it a lot of your victims fight back and I'm thinking of Stevie in in this book. She's a very strong woman. Tell us more about her. Well, Stevie is actually, um,
1: she she came into my mind many years ago and uh, I had read uh, an article about a woman who, and and it was not a suspense, it was a woman who had um, lost, she was pregnant and her husband and child had gone off on some kind of a, a day trip or something. And do you ever, if you, do you have in South Africa those, oh, they're like semi-trucks, but they're flatbeds carrying lumber, timber? Yes. And I've always worried when I'm driving. I'm always speed by those really fast because, you know, cables break and things happen. And those trucks that carry many, many cars, they, fall, they must fall off sometime. It, is, it has to happen sometime. My husband's like, all oh, right, I make those cables really strong. You worry too much. But in this case, the cable did break. And the woman was watching T V, she was watching the news and she saw um, she saw the car with her cars with her license plate and it was her husband and child had been crushed. They had been parked at a convenience store, the cable in the truck next to them had snapped, the lumber had just just, you know, tumbled and smashed their car. And that's how she found out her husband and child were dead was by watching the news. And but she was pregnant and she made herself go on and I thought there is an incredible strength. To this woman and you know it was her I think at this point her her, the child that she'd been carrying was four and so she could actually speak about it at this point but I thought there there's a a strength and a resiliency that I admired so much and I never forgot the story I don't even know if I was writing at the time but I never forgot the story and the last thing her husband did was throw himself over his child to protect her in the car as this because they couldn't get out. The lumber was just, you know, starting to crash down. And, you know, so his last act as a father was one of protection. And that just it just made this huge impact on me. It, it actually haunted me for days. I just couldn't stop thinking about it. So when it came time to write Stevie, I knew that that was going to be her story. And I, t- I changed it. You know, her husband and son are killed in a um, wrong place, wrong time, she believes, convenience store robbery. And you believe that all, all the way up until, because you meet Stevie three books earlier. And you know that that's her story, Um, but you find out in the prologue of this book that it wasn't wrong place, wrong time. Her husband was a target, and then the whole book is you know kind of kind of goes from there. Um, You know, and Stevie, she fights back. She fights back, partly because it's who she is, but she's got this child, and what her journey. She's got so many journeys in this. It's a journey to open herself up to uh, to the hero, of course, to to find love again. And it's, but it's also the journey to to balance, not just work and work in motherhood, but it's it's the protection of her child versus the love of her child. You know, she loves her child, but it's she's almost so terrified to protect her child, she can't show her child how much she loves her. And so it's it's her journey in that as well. So Stevie, she was a very complex, and I, and I really loved her.
0: You know, as I was writing, I really loved Stevie. So did I. Thank you. Um, And you do tend to repeat characters. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that because you feel you're not done with them or you're not ready to let them go after you've finished a book? Um, You mean when they come back and
1: get a book of their own? Or if they have had a book of their own and they come back? I I just kind of feel like it's revisiting Old Friends. And my readers really seem to like that. And I didn't do it on purpose. Um, It wasn't a plan. I'd written my very first sale, That Don't Tell, has a character in it that I never even thought, oh, he could have his own book someday. But when I sold Don't Tell, it was a two-book contract. I was like, oh, okay, I'll write the second book about him. Um, and it worked out. And then the third book and the fourth, I mean, just kind of went on from there. And it became this organic kind of, of course they're going to appear in somebody else's book. And of course they're going to connect. And, and uh, my readers really seem to like that. So that's what I do.
0: And, and I enjoy it as well. It is like seeing old friends. Your, your set pieces are, are very complex, action sequences how do you plot them
1: the fight scenes and things some well that's actually funny um I have a friend who is my former karate teacher who's now in the the United States Navy and she helps me plot these fight scenes sometimes and sometimes they're kind of complicated especially if there's weapons and you know sometimes they need four hands to do all the things you want them to do and their feet can't possibly be in all the places that you want them to be so you almost have to act it out in your head and then, you know, I'll, I'll run it by a friend. Could this happen? You know, if, if I, I had a, a character in this situation, how could they get out? If they had this kind of training, um, you know, what are possible scenarios that they could get out? And she's, you know, she's up, she's a, a, a night out like me, so I'll text her and she'll text me back. And yeah, it's a, so she's one of my big, one of my big, uh, one of my big uh, helps, one of my big contacts.
0: And do you have contacts in the police force as far as I technology and forensics go? I do. Not as many as, as I would like, but I don't think you ever have as many as you'd like.
1: Um, I, my, one of my big uh, sources in the police department is the retired... Um, uh, he was a retired lieutenant of the Atlanta Homicide Division. And um, he actually... Uh, something that his squad did actually was, became a big part of two of my Minneapolis books, my Hat Squad books... Where the detectives wear fedoras, which is something that he instituted when he was the, the lieutenant of the homicide department in Atlanta. When um, he, he just wore a fedora because he felt like it gave him more of a stature, and it was almost part of his his uniform. They wore suits and ties, but he would wear the fedora, and he would come on. People would know, you know, he's in charge. He's the detective. But it made him, he said, it made him feel more like a detective, like the old film noir guys. And they start the other detectives started wearing. Fedoras, and they had this—they um, had this tradition that whenever a rookie detective comes in and solves his first homicide, all the other cops get together, chip in, and buy him his first fedora. And I love that story. And right before Danny, my friend, retired, he was able to give his own son his first, because his son had come into the homicide division as a cop and give him his first fedora. It was like, oh, it shook me up. Um, so yeah, he is one of my my go-to's, and he answers me. You know, almost immediately, he really enjoys being part of it. Um, I get emails from cops. You know, not all the time, but sometimes. You know, if you ever have any questions, um, people who are gun experts. You know, you made a mistake on this gun. If you ever have any questions, call me and I'll make sure you get it right. Pharmaci- a pharmacist emailed me once. Well, this drug doesn't come in a capsule. It only comes in a tablet. If you have questions, and I do. You know, I'll go back and say, well, if I need to trace a certain lot of syringes how do what how does that happen in a pharmaceutical system and she tells me and i was and my my, my favorite source is a, a doctor friend of mine he's the husband of the woman who introduced me and my husband actually and we've been friends for 25 years now and uh you know how do you kill somebody like this or if somebody gets shot What's what's the emergency, you know, procedure, or how long could they conceivably wait before they're back to work, or if I want to poison someone in such a way?
0: So yeah, I do have sources, and they're a lot of fun. I think um, in in your type of book, in suspense novels, that that things do have to be absolutely authentic. Um, you have to you have to trust the details as a reader. Well, sometimes, and sometimes
1: you can't find out everything you want, and I think there's a there's a fine line between offering too much information um, so that you bog it down, and enough to give the reader a flavor of what it is. Like I had um, my sixth book is about the is about an arson investigator in Chicago, and I tried so hard to get information out of those guys, they just would not return my phone calls. So finally, I just said, "Well, what makes sense, you know?" And I made it up. And then, when about a year later, I get this email from um, a forensic arson invest uh, a guy who does forensics for arson investigation I was like oh no I'm you know busted and he was like yeah you did this right you did this like you know I dodged the bullet sometimes things just make sense and um, I wrote a book where the heroine was an archaeologist and it's just how they did things I didn't I didn't really know but I figured what made the most sense ended up giving the book to um, one of my daughter's archaeology contacts through the university. They took it on a dig to Egypt, passed it all around. The archaeologists all loved it. It It's like, sure dodge that bullet too. So sometimes I don't know, and I flavor it with enough information or enough detail that makes sense that the reader isn't pulled out of the story. Because, again, if you give too much detail, sometimes it just puts people to sleep.
0: You do have to guard against that. Um, I don't want to put people asleep. <laughs> I want to keep them awake. That's kind of my... Awake all night is what you really <laughs>
1: I stayed awake all night writing it. You have to stay awake all night reading it. <laughs> now, you were a high school chemistry teacher. For a while.
0: And you now teach creative writing, is that right? Oh,
1: no, no, I don't teach at all. I, work, I write full-time. Okay. When I was a teacher, thank goodness, um, I liked teaching. I really liked teaching. But I didn't like the administrative aspects of having to put grades in a grade book. I was just... That was that was that was too much, and and it did. It was um, teaching creative writing was actually much harder than I thought it was going to be. I loved teaching math; actually, that was my favorite subject to teach. But we worked in a charter school, and we only had a few teachers, so everybody did kind of what they knew how to do. And because I had my engineering background, the chemistry and the physics and the math, and then because I was a writer, I got to teach this this uh, creative writing. And it's easier to do. I think for me that it is to teach, plus then I had to read everything the kids wrote, and it was, oh my gosh, these were dramatic, these were, it was a drama school, so the kids were over the top dramatic anyway, and it was all about death and dying, and oh, everything was, I was like, well, I'm going to drown my head in a bucket, after a while I was like, you guys have to stop writing stuff, <laughs> we have to do a
0: different unit. So you do, so you write full time now? I do. Are you quite ruthless in terms of editing yourself? Um, Yes. In
1: fact, um, most of my books, this is a big book, but this was actually probably 20% longer in my, when I finished the first, uh, I had to cut 20% out of it. And I don't actually cut a lot of big scenes. Once it's done, it's pretty well done. Then I'm cutting a word here and a word there. And if you cut a word, if you cut enough words to cut one line and you do that 24 times, it's a page. And if you do that 200 times, it's 200 pages. <laughs> And that's that's how I edit. So it is by the time it gets to the point where I turn it in, it is as bare to the bone as I can possibly make it, and not lose, you know, and not lose anything that I want the reader to know.
0: And but uh, when you start out, I mean, do you start out with the whole thing plotted out? Oh yes. Or do you? I know some writers, even thriller writers, they sort of start and see where it takes them. That would make me insane. Um, I always
1: know how it ends, and I always know the key points in between. Um, I don't always know how they're going to get from here to there. And the times when I've had to kind of write without a net, those have been kind of the most nailed biting books for me. Ultimately, the most, some of the most rewarding. But this last book, I, I, knew just about, I knew just about every point from, you know, A to B, A to Z, I knew almost every point in between. There were only a few surprises for me as a writer in this book. Now, sometimes I'll be writing along and a character will pop up that I didn't plan or a twist will have, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. So-and-so's, that, that's, her, that's her illegitimate father? Oh, that makes a lot of sense, you know, kind of thing. But uh, um, most of the time I know pretty well what's going to happen.
0: And apart from Tammy Hogue, what, what other books do you read um, when, you're, when, when you're relaxing? Um, well, the, in
1: terms of thrillers, I like Lisa Gardner and uh, I like Michael Connelly. I love his Harry Bosch series. Like no Harry don't do that he's another one that makes me forget I'm an author because I get so tied up in, in, tr- in trying to pull Harry back from the ledge that I'm, I kind of don't pay attention to all the clues and then at the end I'm like ah I should have seen that coming um, but uh, what I'm not reading th- I don't read a lot of thrillers I actually like the vampire stories <laughs> it's kind of dark and I like the dark vampire stories and they do tend to be suspenses in and of themselves there's always an evil that they must fight and sometimes it's a human evil sometimes it's not a human evil and uh, so I get all of the you know kind of the, the, the fighting of evil a lot of the police stuff but with a twist that has nothing to do with my book so it's just it's enough of a difference that kind of a nice change and Karen your next book what can we look forward to well it's uh, it has a title it's called closer than you think and it is uh, I'm, I'm moving away from Baltimore for a while and but I'm taking one of the characters with me and his this Deacon Novak, who is one of the FBI agents, who's in this book and the book before, he was actually introduced in "Did You Miss Me?" And when I when he was introduced in "Did You Miss Me?", he was not in the proposal. I'm just writing the scene, and all of a sudden, the, the hero turns around, and there's this other guy, the other FBI agent, standing behind him, who is this bigger than life, wears a long leather trench coat, wrap around sunglasses, he's got white hair, strange eyes, and I heard the theme music from the Clint Eastwood movies, movies that, that pipe. That, 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 uh, that flute music, the pan flute music, I heard it in my head. When the hero turned around in the scene and looked, I heard the music. I was like, oh, well, he's going to have his own book someday. So Deacon gets his own book, and the new series is set in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is was my home for about 15 years. So I consider it almost more my hometown than Baltimore. Excellent. Well, we look forward to that. Thank you so much Thank for you. talking to us. Thank you very much.